Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All right, everybody, on today's show, we have a fellow pariah within the clinical space that's helping other mental health professionals tackle all of the forbidden topics that we have been dying to hear more about. Alex, otherwise known as Cancelled Counselors on Instagram, is a mental health professional that talks specifically about how cancel culture has essentially infiltrated not only the clinical field, but society as a whole. Alex, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I am thrilled to dive into this conversation. Guys, right about 30 seconds before recording this, Alex and I were discussing how um, excited and nervous we were to, to dive in. So that being said, Alex, before we get into the story behind your name, I want to actually read one of the guidelines on your page because I think it perfectly captures the zeitgeist of 2022 America. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the guidelines that you had written says... Strangers on the internet are not responsible for you. Words, actions, choices, and emotions are irrevocably the responsibility of the individual. Yes. What made you add these guidelines to your page, Alex? I think in part because something that has become just so common on the internet is the idea that, you know, if someone gets upset that mm -hmm. someone else has to like repent or like make it okay. Yes. When really that's not what we need. What we might need to do is just take a break, step mm -hmm. away and just leave it alone. We mm -hmm. don't need to pick at a wound and make it bleed more. What we might mm -hmm. actually need to do is just leave it alone, go focus on something else and just accept that you can't control everything because we can't control other people. No one can make someone do anything. We can't make them change their mind. We can't make right. them apologize. Mm -hmm. We're just different people. Mm -hmm. But if we shove our power and our onus onto someone else, that's disempowering ourselves. And I think that that's another thing that snowballs into the zeitgeist of what's happening of there's so much talk about power, but not enough embodiment of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's that outsourcing of responsibility that we almost, in the moment, it can feel like it's empowering to blame it on somebody else because admitting to fault is hard, but we don't right. actually realize that we're giving all of our power away, essentially, in doing so. Right. Well, because blame like protects the ego, but it doesn't utilize any skill. It just kind of has like a, a bypassing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a, actually a nice segue into into the story behind your name, which I haven't heard in, in depth. So if you don't mind, Alex, take it away. <laughs> sure. And I'll, I'll keep it like pretty, not like vague intentionally, because I don't want to like share the story. But like, you know, there are some people that I care about. And I'll preface this with, I have not been canceled outright. Like, I'm not going to claim that that has happened. But there was kind of a cancel light, like, like a diet cancellation, I suppose that happened. <laughs> so I, I work in Portland and I'm a queer person in Portland and the queer community here is small. The queer mm -hmm. counseling community is even smaller as you know, you might suspect. Um, and I was in an environment where social justice was like the lens that we were operating in, in this practice. And don't get me wrong, like I have a lot of social justice values, but I think that there is an underbelly to social justice culture that just turns so vicious so quickly. And I was seeing this shift in this environment where we're starting to become that. And so essentially there were these separate caucuses that were made to try and handle the discussion of race in this space. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure most people listening will probably understand, it, it became a shit show like so uh -huh. quickly. And it was really sad to see because everyone was approaching it with 
good intentions and good faith. But the space just wasn't able, like we just, I don't know what happened. I think that there was just a conglomerate of multiple things that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly in this part of the country, this discussion has become so charged because Oregon is very white, but there's Mm -hmm. so much of that hesitation around identity topics and like power and privilege. And like, I think another thing that adds to it is when people, if someone is made a spokesperson of an identity group and then everything that that person represents just gets put on that one individual, Mm -hmm. that makes it hard. And that can be in a way I would argue personally that that can be a sense of dehumanization Anyway, so there there were these race caucuses that were made to try and address some of the issues there. Um, There was a BIPOC caucus and a white caucus. And my understanding was that the BIPOC caucus was to try and, you know, support those individuals so they could kind of have a space to just talk about what it's like to be a person of color in a predominantly white area. Which which would be great in theory, right? Yeah, totally. Like having Mm -hmm. a place to just kind of check in with one another not have to worry about other stuff. Awesome. I think that that makes a lot of sense. But the white caucus, it, it just didn't go the way that any of any of us had envisioned. And what essentially ended up happening was it was supposed to be a place of addressing like, okay, how can we do better? But in that approach, there's a lot of shame there because there's kind of this idea of, white people are inherently racist. So there must be work that you have to undo so that you can become either not racist or anti-racist, which, okay, I don't know anyone who thinks racism is good, but I do take issue with the idea that any identity is inherently anything because I just don't believe that to be true. Like I think that things like that are taught and modeled. And sometimes that does happen depending on where you live and what that looks like and particularly in what time, you know, but there's this idea of like this original sin of you have X identity. So you must have this oppression or oppressor thing within you. And that is inherent. And I think that that's a really slippery slope. So I've been in around a lot of spaces like that where some of the white spaces, it, it, it essentially becomes like an ego masturbation circle jerk of white people feeling good for feeling bad for feeling good for feeling bad. And it's just weird. Um, it didn't turn into that immediately, although that definitely did creep into the space. But it got to a mm-hmm. point where other people, if they weren't repeating this narrative, were essentially attacked or shut down. Or there was this weird way of just like making what they were sharing non-negotiable, like non-feasible. They weren't allowed to say it. They said the wrong thing at the wrong time, even if it was just, hey, maybe we could not feel the need to police each other on our vocabulary. Like maybe we can just accept that, you know, we're going to fuck up and make mistakes and mistakes fucking happen because we're human and we're in a relationship and we can learn how to navigate that, repair it and move forward. Mm -hmm. But there was this idea of, well, our mistakes are other people's trauma. And it's just like, wait, this is just getting more convoluted, less clear, and everyone's walking on eggshells. So <laughs> what had happened as, as I was transitioning out of this space to go more into a private practice realm, I drafted a letter and I was very polite. I spent over a week on this letter, Kayla. I vetted it with multiple people before sending it because I wanted to know if I was in the wrong, like... I too am human and fallible and I fucking sometimes step on people's toes and I don't mean to, but sometimes I do. And I wanted to make sure that that was prevented as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So I drafted this letter. I addressed the white caucus specifically because that's where I was, where I was seeing these problems. However, in other spaces I had seen where all of this just played in a really like everything was just feeding off of each other in a way that wasn't helpful to anyone. And all of us were scared and hurting. Sure. All of us were in relational pain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I address that in the letter in a way of saying, you know, I think that this is a culture we're all contributing to. And I don't think that any one particular person is to blame. In fact, I'm not even excluding myself. I think I've contributed to this as well. Trying to make it very broad and open. And I said multiple times in the letter, it's okay if you disagree with me. It's okay. Like if I upset any of you, that is not what I'm trying to do. But I cannot sit on my truth. And I think that this is really doing a lot of very immediate damage. And if you disagree with me, I welcome that. And if you want to talk about it, I am happy to sit down and have a conversation with the intent to understand. And I will silently listen. Um, so I said my piece and I was like, look, I don't think white people are inherently racist. I mm-hmm. think that this is actually making us more scared and it's encouraging shame in some ways. And I think that the belief that every BIPOC person would agree with this narrative is untrue. And there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And that has been shared before. Um, (laughs) And then I sent it and I waited and we were supposed to have a meeting around these caucuses the next morning. It unfortunately got canceled. And I was like, oh shit. (laughs) So the meeting in response to your letter, Alex? No, it was like a, just a regularly scheduled meeting to okay. discuss like some of this race work. No, it wasn't about my letter yet. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> um, so the meeting got canceled and I was like, well, it got canceled within two hours after I sent that very controversial letter. And I was like, well, shit. Okay. You know what? I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm going to volunteer to host the meeting because I realized I just did something that really rocked the boat but I stand by what I said and I want people to feel open to discuss it if they so choose. So I sent a link and I was like, you know what? Here's what I think. I'm going to host the meeting. If people want to come, feel free. If not, that's okay. I understand. Um, Some people did come and we talked about things a little bit because one of the things I addressed was like, I think we're all bullying each other and I think this needs to stop. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with race, essentially. That just has to kind of do with a little human savagery that's within us all to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. Um, That went okay, I thought. Um, The meeting, at least. (laughs) I'm laughing because the the responses I got just it, the the punishments just didn't fit the crime. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is common these days. It's very disproportionate. Right. Well, it's just so, it's so trigger happy on the punishment aspect, right? It's like we could just sit down and have a conversation and talk Mm -hmm. about it. But for some reason, I I don't know if those tools are just out of reach for some people. I'm not sure. Um, The meeting that I had volunteered to lead got addressed and people were really upset and some people were messaging other people of how have you not apologized for essentially Alex's letter? How could mm-hmm. you guys just let Alex do this? And I essentially got an email saying, we need to talk about the repercussions of your letter. And I was like, oh no, I'm getting called into the principal's office. Like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> It felt very, yeah, it just felt disproportionate. Um, Met with the people and I was like, what, like, did I really do something wrong? Like, I'm really confused here. Like, please just help me understand. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I don't think anyone knew what it was that I did wrong. They were just like, people are upset and would like an apology. But the more we were talking about it, it became clear, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't, I'm not so sure you all do either what is it that I said? I'm really lost. So initially I was willing to make an apology and just make it easy for people, but it became an us versus them dynamic of the white person said the wrong thing. And some people are having some emotional responses. But when I inquired, because I did reach out to a couple of them and I asked, I was like, hey, like, I'd really just like to hear your thoughts on this. Like, tell me what happened they most of them politely declined which is fine like that's a boundary that's fine but I was asked to apologize for harm 
and impact. Mm. But I didn't know what I was apologizing for. And I was like, this, I, I can't responsibly do this. I don't know what I'm saying I'm sorry for. And I have no problem taking ownership of if I've done anything wrong. But I don't know what it is that I did wrong. Right. Because harm, I mean, everyone has their own subjective version of harm now. And that's just another term that has been swallowed by concept creep. So these very minimal behaviors or, or offensive words or phrases or even conversational mishaps that we have are now falling under the umbrella of harm, which goes back to what you initially said, which was every conversation feels like an eggshells conversation. Yes. Yeah. So in hearing your story about how it played out with you and the race caucus and, and your part and how essentially it, it rings very true to many stories I've heard <laughs> where you were, of course, the one that was responsible for repenting in some way. Do you find that there are similar, yep. um, similar culture wars between psychology and therapy related disciplines? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I could capture it in a word, but there's something happening where there's a hierarchy of sorts between practices and modalities. And it's really strange because even in terms of not even therapy at large, but in terms of what modalities do you utilize I mean, I utilize CBT, I use cognitive behavioral therapy, and some people would make an argument that that's too in the head and not enough in the body, and that there's something about white supremacy being linked to that, which, okay, mm -hmm. like that argument could be made, but I don't know if I agree with it, because mm -hmm. it's just a different tool utilized for different people, and not every tool is going to work the same. Sure. And, and that's not as a tool that isn't only used by one race or one gender or one ethnicity over another. It really is dependent on the person that's receiving it. So right. I, to, and to your point, I can understand where we might land on these theories where uh, we look at the past and some really sketchy behavior, some very uh, racist behavior. I'm not denying at all that racism is still alive in, in 2022, but I think the tying it to everything that we do, uh, conflating those two things is a little, that's the real harm to me. What are your thoughts on that? Like you mean in the sense of trying to look for it in everywhere and everything? Yes. Yes. Well, because I would say that that encourages a low grade kind of paranoia and hypervigilance where we're constantly scanning. And I don't think that that's good for the human psyche. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the short-term and long-term consequences of this chronic walking on eggshells? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a really good question. Short-term, I think it really damages our confidence and our relational skills because we're constantly doubting ourselves, right? Like if we're trying to, again, have that external power of like, am I right or am I wrong? Mm -hmm. That removes the individual from being able to say that for themselves. If they're not able to identify their values and principles upon which they operate from, sure. they're inevitably going to operate under someone else's. And mm -hmm. I would say that that would, in many ways, fragment the individual from themselves because mm -hmm. they don't know who they are and what they stand for. They're kind of swallowed by what's popular or is it less extreme than that? It could be. I think it would depend. It could be that because there is a sense of groupthink that I think is really hard to deny. But on what scale that is, it just it just so depends on the context and what's happening. But sure. I think that that would easily be possible, absolutely. And so if the short... Yeah, if the short-term effect is something like we're losing sight of who we are, we're, com we're becoming a little bit uh, further away from our center, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah. Over time, if there is no intervention for this, or if we aren't able to move the needle, what do you think that means for therapy? The definition, maybe. 
Maybe. I might need to think about that one some more. I think in the therapeutic room, it could change a lot because there's already a pressure of, and I really love the way that you articulated it of, you know, the consumer or the client is always right. It's kind of that customer service attitude. And I think that that really puts people on a very slippery slope because Sure. On some level, do we need to hear our experience reflected back to us? Yes, that's part of the therapeutic rapport. But that doesn't mean that the narrative that someone is coming up with or is creating is necessarily serving them well. So say, for example, we'll continue with the example of harm. So if someone was feeling slighted by someone else and something that they said, maybe that happened, maybe not. But I think another thing that's happening is and I think that this is in a way getting normalized in this culture too, is people are playing out tapes and projections at another person who they're just kind of having fill in the spot, but that's not reflective of the conversation that's actually happening in that moment. That moment of time, like there's there's some disconnect that's happening and they're no longer talking to that person. They're having a previous conversation play out at someone And I think that in a way, if we're not careful, and again, like nuance and discernment is the only thing that's really going to help here, that could really lead to a lot of other problems, including the client not reaching a place of being able to discern for themselves, where am I, what's happening, is my reaction appropriate, do I need to go inside and regulate anything? Because if someone just starts foaming at the mouth, their defenses, the other person's defenses are going to go up and it shuts down all conversation and communication because you're no longer regulated. Everyone's just spinning out in their own world. And that's not functional. Like it just can't be. And if, if a therapist is encouraging, like you're always right, you're always right, you're always right. Then that spin out is just given like freaking steroids. It's going faster. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and yeah, I, I'm trying not to like monologue about this too much because I have so many thoughts and I'm trying to kind of slow myself down to make sure I'm not getting 12 inputs simultaneously. Sure, sure. So in this thread of thought, the I, you brought a few things up where we mentioned that it's not the most effective form of therapy to validate everybody's ideas because our, our, our ideas aren't always valid. Our thoughts are not always facts. Do you, where is your stance on the statement that all feelings are valid? I think feelings are valid in the sense of they're actually happening for that person, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like their internal world is their internal world. Mm -hmm. I don't think every response to the emotions is appropriate. And in that way, I would argue that the behaviors upon which you enact from that emotional place is not always valid. So if you're upset, yeah, that's your truth. You have the right to your truth, but that doesn't mean that what you say and how you behave towards another person is appropriate or called for. Absolutely. I, uh, I I remember I wrote a little piece about how I don't believe feelings are valid because of the definition of valid. And I said, well, if we look at valid, it points to logic and a basis in what is a known fact, essentially. And I guess my argument was our feelings can feel like they're facts and our feelings can absolutely be logic to us, but in the sense that they are sound, have a sound basis in logic, that's where, you know, the more technical side of me said, no, feelings aren't valid, but you bring up some really good points about how it could be seen differently. Yeah. Well, and I think like the cool thing about emotions, at least from the way that I operate, is that they give you information. Mm-hmm. There's something you're responding to. Sure. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually happening. Like if we feel jealous, for example, jealousy is a great tool to tell us, oh, someone has this thing that maybe I want to have, or maybe I feel jealous that Uh, you know, I don't know that other people are so drawn to them, but that can, if you use that as a tool, instead of just fact, that can allow you to dig deeper. Like, well, what is under my jealousy? Oh, they embody this trait that I actually really admire and that I want to cultivate more in myself. Sure. Like, I love that example. 
Thank you. Alex, you you live in Portland. I do. <laughs> which yeah. uh, which can for some feel, as I mentioned earlier, like the mecca of cancel culture, if you will. And your ideas are also seemingly not so in line with maybe the general culture of Portland. Can you, would you agree or disagree? I would agree to a point. Like, again, I think a lot of my values are similar, but I just do not at all think that social punishment is an effective way of enacting any change. I think one, it just rips communities apart. Mm-hmm. in a way that's completely unnecessary and socially aggressive. You're starting your own practice, correct? Correct. In the views that you have regarding the basis of therapy, of course, there's the therapeutic alliance and there is the respect between practitioner and client, but th- we want to make sure that we're prioritizing the challenging of beliefs as that will be the thing that kind of launches us forward from our own faulty thinking. Do you find it's difficult to find clientele that are willing to quote unquote, do the work? (laughs) You know, in some ways, yes, but probably not for the reasons you'd think. I think a lot of the clients that, at least in my experience so far, the ones, because I'm a queer trans person treating other predominantly queer trans people. Sure. We all want pretty similar things. Like we want social relationships where we feel important. We want to be able to feel empowered of our own lives. Like it's, it's the freedom of self-determination and the ability to grow. Sure. And I think what kind of started me down this path of looking at cancel culture is that I've had so many clients from the queer and trans community say like, I've been having these experiences where I've just been shut out and I I don't know how to make it better. I don't know what to do. So yeah. I was kind of like, that's interesting. It's very clear that this is a very, like Portland's kind of known for this. I think in um, Clementine Morgan's project of fucking canceled, they have addressed Portland as one of the top cancel cities and I would have to full-heartedly agree we're constantly making ground zero for ourselves mm-hmm. repeatedly, like on a daily basis. But there's a lot of people I think that are wanting to look at this and address this, but maybe feel scared too. And my hope as a professional is to try and say, no, it's okay to talk about this. It's okay that what you're seeing doesn't make sense to you because honestly, I don't think it makes sense either. Mm-hmm. there's no reason for this to be happening and we can have disagreements, but that doesn't mean we need to shun and exile people from our communities. In fact, that's going to further a relational wound. And so many people who enter my office already have those. So again, like sure. why dig the wound deeper? Alex, I want to know a little bit more about how you got into the field. Yeah. So Well, when I was younger, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't go so far as to say that my story is a terribly sad one, but it's definitely one that has a rough start. Um, My parents got divorced when I was pretty young. I was raised by a parent who had undiagnosed, uh, what's the word, schizoaffective and borderline personality disorder. So childhood was very difficult in many ways just because there was so much dysregulation and in a certain way because it was undiagnosed like there was just so much happening and in hindsight I'm able to go oh okay that's a low-grade delusion that was some paranoia that was present in the home there was again the walking on eggshells like that theme comes back and starts from this Mm -hmm. part of my story of oh shit okay Mm-hmm. I have to be careful. Full circle. <laughs> it's weird how that happens so often in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so my story kind of starts there. And I was, I was a cutter for a long time. Like I really struggled with self-harm. And in middle school, I ended up going to an in, uh, adolescent inpatient clinic okay. uh, for two weeks and then got out, tried to kind of you know, as they do, okay, like, let's look at the family system. Let's see what's going on there. 
got into therapy, have a great therapist who I still see to this day. And it's been about 14 years, I think. Wow. That's great. Yeah. She's been a really great role model for me in many ways. And then went to college, was pre-med and then calculus was hard. (laughs) (laughs) Was not having a good time in calculus. Turned you off. No more med. (laughs) No, it it just, I couldn't get past it. So Mm -hmm. went to psychology Mm-hmm. didn't really look back, wanted to help people in a way that, I mean, it's kind of, in some ways, I guess it's common to the story of, was it the hero's journey where the hero suffers, isn't strong enough, go, becomes stronger, goes back. But I personally, like, I hear this common in the field of the wounded healer, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't know if I like that archetype simply for the reason of it takes our pain and moves into the realm of identity. And Mm -hmm. I think identity is a realm that's really slow to change. So personally, what I prefer is the warrior of the heart of people who have gone through a lot of heartache, but even when they fall, they get up and keep going because that's resilience, right? In many ways of there's hardship, but you don't let it stop you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a similar experience. I was in treatment for anorexia for a really long time. And it was, it was that really quick revolving door of therapy where they say, well, we're going to take a lot of these deep seated issues. And in 30 days, you could go back to your life and hopefully you will be able to utilize all of the skills that you learned. And it was within that, that really got me thinking that I've always wanted to be someone that pioneered any sort of change instead of simply just adding to it. So I think the the wounded healer one is, I feel like that really resonates too, because maybe for a long time, it was selfish, uh, subconsciously selfish for me to think that I could heal whatever I was dealing with by helping other people, um, when really it was just an escape from having to address my own challenges. (laughs) maybe at some points, but when we do look too and like look back at some of those hurts, mm-hmm. there's so much power there as well. We Absolutely. just have to get through the painful part. Mm-hmm. I like this topic because this is very common um, amongst children. And you see me post about this a lot because I work with a lot of parents who, and this ties into the validation and the affirmation piece where there's a lot of movements towards keeping people away from potentially triggering situations or situations that could potentially cause harm are ones that will do more harm than good. Right. Well, because they don't have, (laughs) yeah, you don't learn how to navigate through it. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you, do you get many clients that come to you that are wanting more of an affirmative type of therapy? You know, I think if they're looking for that, they tend to not, like, I think we usually kind of feel that pretty quickly and Mm -hmm. we kind of address that we're maybe not a good fit. So I can't say that I come in contact with it much, Mm -hmm. at least not in like a very severe way. And if people do... I mean, to some degree, like, you know, you do have to build that therapeutic rapport again that we kind of talked about earlier, but sure. if it's to a degree where they're like, I have to always be right and how dare my therapist not agree with me, <laughs> I'm usually like, I think maybe there's someone who can help you more than I will. <laughs> <laughs> I think you normal. might be in the wrong office. <laughs> yeah, which that's okay. I'm not going to be the right fit for everyone. That's fine. Like there's other people I'm going to be a great fit for. And I'm sure you encounter that too. There's some people who are like, we're going to do miles of work. And there's other people where it's like, you know what? People come in and out of our lives to teach us things. And maybe today's lesson was just, you learned what didn't work so well for you. That's fine. I love that. That's still a that's that's still a very valuable lesson as the ones that we learn if we stay in contact with people. So that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. What has been the biggest barrier, if any, in building your practice so far? Oh, that I'm just so new at it. <laughs> the business side is hard. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot of learning curves that I'm going through mm-hmm. in very real time. Can you talk about some of those? I think honestly, it's mostly just I'm learning what I'm doing on the fly. I have no <laughs> idea how to advertise myself. I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm thankfully in a situation where I don't have to do billing necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like someone takes care of that for me. Sure. Thank God. I think a lot of us find what's what's very flawed within the healthcare system. And a lot of us are often thrust into situations where we just can't possibly give really high quality services to the amount of people that we're given. I'm not sure if that was the case for you. So we think the next best idea is to start our own practice. And we think, well, I'm a clinician. I could do this. And then we get into it and there's about 10% clinical work and 90% of all of the things that you don't know that you don't know. And that becomes, it becomes challenging. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yep, that, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like a lot of it's learning what you don't know. Mm-hmm but you kind of have to go through the ring of fire. You have to, you have to. It's that, that piece, that adversity piece and the, the willingness to trudge through adversity that kind of brings you to a whole new skill set. Um, one that I don't think you would have been able to contact if you had taken the uh, route of avoidance. Oh, I 100% agree. It's kind of like when we exercise or work out, are you willing to choose momentary discomfort for long-term strength building? Mm-hmm. And I think absolutely. I want to. I want to hear what you think about this too, because I think something that's pivotal about that is the aspect or the element of choice of like mm-hmm. I'm going to choose this short-term discomfort. Whereas some people, if they feel like they don't have a choice, that kind of exacerbates for them. What do you think? I'm smiling because I'm I'm thinking about my parents and my upbringing and I've I've always been so incredibly disciplined and and seen motivation as something that is just this hot burning fuel that lasts 4 seconds. So at some point discipline does have to take over and this could just be a very biased response from me but I always sometimes feel like am I being too harsh when I say you at some point you just need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and do it. I know it's hard. I empathize with how difficult it can be, but, but we all have a choice to do it the same way we choose to be offended by something we choose to encounter and persist through things that are triggering, challenging, difficult, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, no, I, I love what you said. And I think another element of it too is the idea of like, I can't control what happens. I can only cho- control my response to it. Mm-hmm. Like again, like the feelings that come up for me, fine. That's my internal world information, but I still get to choose the words that come out of my mouth as a response. Like I can't control if someone's going to steer their car off the road, but I can control like, oh, I can slow down. I can get out of the way. I don't have to just ram into them. Mm-hmm. This is actually a really, you just sparked my thought into a next little mental alleyway here. I'm thinking about TikTok. I'm thinking about Instagram. I'm thinking about Snapchat where we've, we've blown out the meaning of acceptance in the sense that I am, I absolutely 1000% support the fact that we should accept people's differences in the sense that they should not be treated differently just because of an illness or a disability or a physical impairment of any kind, because it would be cruel to to do so. Absolutely. However, in the sense that acceptance is almost becoming the demand that people accept you. And I just don't think that's fair either. And it almost makes me think of mental illness being something where, and this is why I was kind of talking about therapy earlier is what will therapy mean if people aren't so much interested in treating the symptoms of their illness versus just wanting validation for it. Okay. I'm going to throw out a word. I'm curious if you've heard it. Are you familiar with the concept of sanism? Oh, wow. No, I'm not. (laughs) Okay. So this is 
when I came across this term, it like broke my brain a little bit, to be honest with you. (laughs) It's the idea that I'm trying to think of how to like summarize it because I came across it in a book by Kai Cheng Tom called I Hope We Choose Love, which is actually a uh, radical left perspective of cancel culture, like from a Chinese trans woman. It's actually a really good read. It's short too. So if you ever get the chance, yeah, it's, it doesn't take much of your time or energy. It's, it's a good read. Sure. Um, Poetry is beautiful too, but she introduced this idea of sanism in her chapter, stop letting trans women kill themselves because there's an argument that, well, I'm just in so much pain and no one can love me in like the world is like out to get me, which you and I have kind of like talked on a little bit, but the idea of sanism is, well, this is my experience and I have the right to, I'm trying to remember how it was phrased because it was very succinct and I'm not going to do its service. But this idea that everyone has to aim for and try to ascribe to an outside perspective, like idea of sane when Mm. really for you and I as professionals, we're usually familiar with the idea of when people are in steep stages of like psychosis or delusions or like, like there's a, there's an impairment or impact on daily functioning. And that's usually what we're trying to treat. That's what we're trying to manage the symptoms around of, Hey, have whatever experience you want, but if it's getting in the way of your functioning, like if you're not able to shower or go Mm -hmm. to work or maintain relationships, like that's impacting your quality of life. Mm-hmm. So the idea of sanism is like, well, I have this, again, I'm not going to do a service here. And I don't know, I'm just going to have to accept that I'm going to explain this imperfectly, <laughs> and that's fine. But <laughs> I have the right to my experience and no one gets to judge me for it. And it's like, true, like, I'm not going to make a judgment on your character for it. However, sure. like, back to the spinning out. In my opinion, I think it is inhumane and cruel Mm -hmm. to watch people spin out and not at least try and stick your arm out and get them to stop spinning in the the whirlpool that's Mm -hmm. happening. And, you know, sometimes, especially as the professional in a relationship, they might latch onto your arm and they might start biting and kicking and screaming and fine. Mm -hmm. But when we're in that context, sometimes that's our job to do and go, ow, ow, ow. Okay, next time I'm wearing a thicker rubber glove. <laughs> sure. It's like a dog bite. But mm-hmm. we can't, It again, we can't control other people. We can't control if they choose to stop biting and maybe grab our arm and have us help pull them out. That's mm-hmm. their choice. They are an autonomous individual with free will. They can choose that. Mm-hmm. But they may also choose to bite until we retract and keep spinning. Sure. Which, I mean, sometimes that's just the heartbreaking reality of our profession is sometimes that's chosen, Mm -hmm. but that's their choice to make. But sometimes it does lead to things like suicide. And I think that that's really heartbreaking. It is. It is. And there's the other side of those that release their grip on us and say, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that anyone would outwardly say, I don't want help because I haven't so much heard that, but it's been more of, I, my illness or my disability or what have you has become such a strong piece of my identity that I don't want to alleviate the symptoms of it because then who will I be without it? it? It's like, who will I be if I'm not sick? Ooh, I came across a really good term from a friend the other day that I think you'll like. I can't wait. It's called identity fusion. Identity fusion. It's It reminds me of things that are very, um, it's very similar to acceptance and commitment therapy. The, no, the idea like of <laughs> fusion. I like act too. And that, that is, is it similar identity fusion with the act version of fusion? It might be. This was me and my friend were just in a conversation. So I don't know if we defined it in a very specific way so much as like a contextual understanding of how we're applying it. But yeah, kind of like what I was saying earlier of like when things move to the identity realm, identity is a realm that's really slow to change. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I really enjoy about your account too, is like it does focus on behavior. Behavior is something we can change at least more immediately than, you know, other realms of how we self-experience. 
And that's not to say that habits don't become habits, right? Like deep rooted things. Yeah, it's a rut. But yeah, when there's a certain level of identity fusion to where they really, like people will double down and lose really the broader scope of self because Mm -hmm. it has now become fixed in labels versus embodiment, I think is where my mind goes of, well, cool. Like this can be the vernacular you use for yourself, but how do you show up to spaces? Like, how do you embody that? Sure. Are you willing to take care of the bigger picture of self? Mm -hmm. It's hard because so many people use so many different words for it, but I think it's totally possible to balance these things in a harmonious way. It's just figuring out what does that look like? I guess maybe that's a holistic approach, but I also, that word gets thrown around like confetti too. So I feel a little skeptical of it. And that's, that's a piece of it where it's, we go, I vacillate between, am I, am I infuriated or do I find this comical or is it just this twisted mix of both to see words like holistic or trauma informed? uh, What else is out there? X, Y, Z affirming or what have you where the, the basis of it, seems wonderful. Who wouldn't want therapy that is affirming, especially for those that work with younger clients? Who wouldn't want to have a compassionate therapist that sees things through this trauma-informed lens? So outwardly, they seem very great. But going back to something really great you said, Alex, where you said, are we actually embodying all of these things? Or is it just kind of this label that is more of a marketing tactic on a website? (laughs) And I have a hard time figuring out what's legitimate and and what's an an embodiment of what identity we're choosing for ourselves because everything is so hyper-focused in this digital space and these conversations are very rarely had in person. So it's it's hard to tell. Yeah. Well, and we lose so much of the nonverbal nuance too Mm -hmm. when it's not Mm -hmm. in person. I mean, or telehealth or like video or like, you know, whatever. Mm Mm-hmm something I was thinking about the other day. And I think when you and I first started chatting a little bit, you know, we were talking about poetry Mm -hmm. and I was just kind of saying the words out loud to myself, affirm, respect. Mm -hmm. Those words land differently. One of them is very soft, kind Mm -hmm. of like a cotton ball. The (laughs) other one is very firm, Mm -hmm. but but there's like, I don't know how, I'm, I may jumble this a little bit, but there's something about the word respect that acknowledges I am me, you are you, mm-hmm. but there's no threat here. We can mm-hmm. be in a mature relationship, whereas I think affirm, it's so pillowy. It, it reminds me of a parental relationship mm-hmm. versus a peer relationship. Do you feel like it kind of has a rickety foundation because of the word itself, affirm? It could. I think it could. And this isn't to say that anybody who chooses uh, more of an affirming approach to therapy, let's say, or identifies themselves as an XYZ affirming therapist or psychotherapist or what have you, Uh, This isn't to say that maybe they do embody pieces of what it means to affirm someone, but then there also is respect. I mean, those two truths can coexist at the same time as well. So it's definitely not me ruling out an entire group of affirmative people. But like you said, I, I, and this is just me, I definitely am drawn more towards like respect, perseverance, persistence versus affirm even understanding, even compassion. I think just the words of respect seem to, like you said, it's like a a key on a keyboard. It just kind of resonates and it continues to vibrate. And and it just, as the young bucks say, it hits different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, and this is another thing where I it gets tripped up a little bit is when people start to get into the debates over semantics. And it's like, can we just we know what we're trying to say. Like, really, is this where we're getting ourselves tangled up in? But there is something to be said also around the choice of language to a degree. And I'm not saying like micromanage 
and self-censor because that also I think is just not good for the psyche. Sure. But from purely a more poetic artistic lens of, hmm, yeah, like why was that the word you chose? Tell me more about that. What does that mean for you? Sure. And that humility, that coming from a place of humility and curiosity, that would, I feel like that could be the piece that heals therapy as it stands now, instead of the, the, the urge to make sure we tell people you need to say this word because it's more acceptable or the word that you said is problematic or these, these terminological arguments that can be just really damaging to relationships. Will you speak a little more about the terminological side of things. I mean, I can sure as shit try. (laughs) (laughs) That's what matters. (laughs) (laughs) I think something that's happening with it, and I'm I'm sure you'll probably agree, but like there's a moralizing of language. Mm -hmm. But when someone does that, they're making, they're putting themselves in a rather egotistical and like superior position of, well, I'm the arbiter of mm-hmm. what words are good and which ones aren't. And it's like, whoa, wait, 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 okay. Who the fuck are you? Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> exactly. This is a conversation. And mm-hmm. if you are like, again, coming back to like stepping on toes, like, hey, if I step on your toes, dude, my bad. But if you're going to try and get me to repent for something, now we're in a power play. Uh-huh. And I don't want that. Mm-hmm. That that power imbalance is what just it, that sh- if you want a surefire way to shut down any sort of conversation, I think that's one thing that we could do is if we, we just police what they say and we correct their language. And it's I use the example. I forget which comedian used this example, but he he said if you went to a museum and you saw a piece of artwork on the wall that you didn't like, would you bring a sheet with you to cover it to make sure that nobody else would have to witness the art? I mean, do we believe yeah. so strongly in our worldview that um, we're invested in making sure other people believe it too? That doesn't seem healthy. No. And I mean, <laughs> to me, that just sounds insecure. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Why? Hmm. Well, it's that acceptance piece. It's like if I think that that kind of screams that we're having a really difficult time accepting ourselves and having a strong belief in how we see things and how we choose to operate. So we outsource it to other people and we almost rely on other people to validate our feelings for us. Like this is right, right? <laughs> Yeah, like, again, that self-doubt piece of I'm not sure of where I stand, so I'm just going to defer to you when Mm -hmm. really I think the healthier approach is, well, I don't need to defer to you because I feel clear on my principles and I have built the self-trust to know that I will enact them appropriately Mm -hmm. and according to what I believe is the right thing to do. Like, for me, Mm -hmm. sending that letter in the previous context was the right thing to do. There was an elephant in the room and people were, like, very in real time having relational pain Mm -hmm. other people were like good for you would not have done that in a million years but good for you and i was like well (laughs) that's because we're different people yeah we, we have we all have our baggage we have our learning histories i think personality plays a huge piece in it and like you said, it, it's entirely different. So it, we, it reminds me of a, a phrase that we've heard so many times is we're just comparing apples to oranges. And while in some contexts, I think that we can compare apples and oranges, I think in the context of trying to assign worldviews to anybody else but ourselves, that's an apple and an orange that should not be compared at all. <laughs> Yeah, well, because we're different people, and that's mm-hmm. okay, and not, yeah, yeah. I encounter this a lot in Portland, and I'm sure you're probably. I can see in your eyes, you know where I'm going. But the uh-huh. idea of <laughs> if you're not like me, you mm-hmm. must be my enemy, and mm-hmm. you must be oppressing me, or I must be oppressing you. Like this is just. I mean, it's classic black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. It's that and tribalism. Yes, it's the toxic tribalism of you are in my in-group or you are in the out-group 
And we now, for some reason, someone has decided somewhere in the world, we must fight. Why? Mm -hmm. I don't want to fight anyone. I'm not in competition with anyone. I want all of us to succeed and be happy and healthy, like healthy in a genuine sense, not mm -hmm. in the slap a bandaid on it and call it a day, but sure. resiliency, respect, relationship, choosing momentary discomfort for long-term peace and well-being, and having conversations like this where we can approach with curiosity and True. the ability to if necessary, agree to disagree and go, okay, like, where is our commonality? What can we focus on instead? Because we do have more in common than we do different. But when we use things like identity labels and start trading them in a shallow way, kind of like Pokemon cards where it's like, hey, do you have this label? Do you have this label? Hey, dude, can, do you want to trade your Charizard for my like war turtle? It's like, what, what are we doing? Like this is, we're, it's fake deep in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I, I really like how you said that, actually. It's like this, we want to make it this very complex, layered entity, when really it's, you simply disagree with me, and I can't tolerate it. <laughs> it's, 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 it honestly is as straightforward as that in most cases, I won't say in all. Sure. But from the conversations I've found myself in or the conversations I've tried to have, it is as simple as, you know, I'm assuming that we will never find common ground because of how different we seem on social media, which is already a very skewed idea of who we are. Absolutely. And we're, we're taking ourselves out of so many situations where we could learn so much about other people because because of what? What do you think it is? This is going to sound so cliche, but man, I just don't know if I have a better way to wrap it up. But I think there's something happening that's not new, has never mm -hmm. been new, but we're just seeing it more of, uh, I know this is cheesy, sorry. But the worshiping, sorry. <laughs> the worshiping of the deities of fear and hate, mm -hmm. like those have just been so stoked and in real time, like just, we have decided to put it on NASCAR with social media. Mm -hmm. They're ripping around at 200 miles an hour. By the oh, time yeah. it's happened, it's over. You don't even know, like you're just left going, what the fuck was that? <laughs> All I see are clouds of smoke and I fill the gaps in my own head. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I was talking, well, actually this was several years ago with, the therapist that I've known for a long time, but we were having a conversation about things that we need to hear as children, but many of us often don't. And I would go so far as to say many of us spend most of our lives looking for these messages that maybe we didn't get or didn't get enough of, but we want more of. It's three simple phrases. I love you. I'm proud of you. It's okay for you to be different than me. That third one. I mean, the first two are obviously incredibly important. Those are things that we all want to hear, regardless yeah. of our um, resistance to affirmative therapy. That doesn't mean, oh, I don't need to hear I love you. I don't need to hear that I'm doing a great job. Because to some degree, yes, we, we do need some form of validation. And that's completely acceptable. It's, it's an innate quality within the social creature that is a human being, right? Yes. But the, the, the third thing that you just said about differences, I feel like we learn about it in grade school. And as we get older, we, we feel like it almost is only applicable to grade school. <laughs> Honestly, Kayla, to be perfectly frank with you, that's where most of my research and my work is starting to go as I'm trying to like scrape together the rough draft of like bones of like creating a group and maybe, maybe eventually writing a book around cancel culture and how to address it from a therapeutic lens of go sure. back to basics. When shit mm -hmm. gets complicated, mm -hmm. just go back to basics. Sticks what and stones. <laughs> that too. And also just... Yeah. How do you, if there's a conflict in kindergarten, what do you do? 
you both slow down, you address it, you don't avoid it. I think that's another element that contributes to this too, is like people are really conflict avoidant, maybe mm-hmm. for good reason, depending on their own story, but also because sure. I think we've forgotten how to have it done well without either not happening at all or having it explode into a shit show. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be these two extremes. There's tr- mm-hmm. surely, surely there's a middle ground. Mm-hmm. You would think, right? <laughs> we would think. I mean, we teach it to children and then somehow in adulthood, I think we forget or that has now become uncommonly forgotten. I don't know. I don't know what happened there, but we have forgotten how to have healthy conflict. Actually, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm holding up a book, but have you read Conflict is Not Abuse? I haven't. I've heard of it. I admittedly just started it, but I think... I would recommend that book to people because there's an overstatement of harm, kind of like what we were talking about a while ago of a minute offset is now over-exaggerated to a point where, hey, you're upset and that's okay, but you don't make it something that it's not. Sure. Not a global crisis. (laughs) Yeah. The world doesn't have to stop. Mm -hmm. Like you can pause yourself and Many times that's the correct and appropriate thing to do. Yeah, like pause yourself, but the world itself and the people around you don't have to do the same action because they're different than you. And again, it's okay that you're different than me and I'm different than you. Separate individuals experiencing a similar world. Sure, sure. Alex, as we wrap up, I ask my guests this very loaded question. (laughs) Ooh, all right. How do you think we will move the needle from cancel culture within the therapy space, outside of the therapy space. What steps can we take to move it a little bit more into the gray area? Another good question. (laughs) I have several answers. I have several parts of an answer. Is that okay? That's totally fine. (laughs) Okay. The first one is that sharing space with people different than us. And by that, I mean tolerance in its truest sense. Mm -hmm. Tolerance for self-distress, tolerance for not everyone is like you. And actually Mm -hmm. that can be a beautiful thing, not Mm -hmm. a threat. So reframing that a little bit. Sure. The second part is learning the skills to navigate that in relationship and having it, again, not go to the extremes of, it's easier for me to avoid you than ever address this because it's not helpful. It's also not helpful for I'm going to look at this and choose to accept every invitation to every fight I'm ever invited to because that also is not helpful. Exactly. (laughs) And the third I recognize is going to be a little candid, but what can I say? I'm from the country, but we all need to learn to chill the fuck out. (laughs) a succinct way of putting it but it's it it rings true truer now in 2022 than than ever yeah i mean again the concept of choice Mm -hmm. i can choose how big i make something a problem for myself if someone says something shitty to me i can go that sucks and you kind of suck and maybe i don't want to deal with you but i can still walk away sure choose to make it big, I can engage that person and it will inflame it. But again, that's my choice. And I'm going to choose to be happy. Our life is short. We're mortal. We don't have infinite time here. Why would you want to choose this false idea of being right, which you will most likely never achieve in most cases, over being happy? Mm-hmm. It sounds like a, a difficult and exhausting way to try to navigate the short life that we do have. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. Why spend time fighting with strangers instead of making memories with people you love? I agree. I agree. Alex, that was beautiful advice. And I think that the listeners will take a lot away from your insight and all of the 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 really just well said ways that you bring your thoughts and your ideas into this field in a, in a palatable way. So I appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That's really sweet of you. Of I, course. I, thank I, you. 
No, thank you. you. You're doing great, guys. If you are not following Alex on Instagram, his Instagram name is at Canceled Counselors, which we'll put in the show notes. Alex, do you want to include anywhere else where people can find you? Um, if you're in the state of Oregon and you are looking for ways to maybe get involved with a possible group that I'm trying to organize around what it is to envision a world after cancel culture and what that can look like, I'm going to try my best to hopefully get that started in the next year. I don't have any deadlines out yet, but I'll be promoting it on Instagram once I do come up with it. But again, you have to be in the state of Oregon because licensure, sorry. (laughs) Perfect. We will look forward to that. Alex, again, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. Thank you for today's episode. If you have questions, comments, concerns for me or Alex, you could reach out to us at any time. Otherwise, we will see you next time. (laughs) 